This is American Hysteria's Aftershock, where I share with you a story that didn't make it into the main episode. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and today we're talking about beards. Especially in the last 15 years, I'm sure you've seen a mixologist, that's a hipster word for bartender, with an ironic, snidely whiplash villain's mustache curled up at the ends and held there by hard wax. We've all seen that beautiful, perfectly sculpted beard of the metrosexual of lore combined with this blue-collar lager hipster look we love to hate and talked about in our last episode. You might have even spotted Ted Cruz's callback to the Confederacy with his mustache and mutton chops. Much of our current culture around the beard traces back to the problematic 1800s, when crises of masculinity, as well as the desire to get back to nature, combined, of course, with white supremacy and a long-term history of emulating our heroes. While the market for razors has fallen a whopping 5%, Gallons of beard oil and mustache wax have flown off the shelves since the trend took us by storm in the mid-2000s. Beard trimming is big business in L.A., and as it turns out, it's cutting into corporate profits one close shave at a time. That's the problem for Gillette and its parent company, Procter & Gamble. The company just announced an $8 billion non-cash write-down, which means huge losses as guys head to the barbershop and away from the razor. Hipster emulations of old-school barbershops, complete with candy-striped poles on the outside, have been popping up in a number of gentrified city districts, places that already have established black barbershops, and are providing hip young men the total experience of being immersed in 19th-century comfort, straight razor scraping terrifyingly at their throats, all for some cringingly hip vintage experience. Little fun side note, these same red and white barbershop poles created in the 1800s represented the blood and bandages of a shop that would cut your beard and bleed the sickness out of your veins thanks to the help of the now retrospectively horrifying Sweeney Todd-esque figure. That's right, the combination Dr. Barber. The rest of the history of the American barbershop and larger facial hair itself unsurprisingly, has its roots in the power dynamics that still mark our society today. If we trace our evolutionary lineage, biologists have noticed that bonobos, our closest animal relative, are bald around the mouth. In fact, hair growth limited to the face is an almost exclusively human male trait, and theorists of evolution have been pondering this anomaly for decades. Charles Darwin wrote about sexual selection in The Descent of Man, categorizing traits developed to defeat reproductive rivals as either weapons, horns or tusks, or ornaments like feathers or colored hair. Basically, the theory goes that the ancestral women of our species dug men's burgeoning little mutton chops, and so they became a common feature of our species. He also asserted that variations in facial hair growth, like the nearly complete lack of it in early indigenous American tribes, must have something to do with indigenous women in those cultures just not being into it. 
But of course, the colonists also saw themselves as better than those they encountered in the New World because Puritans loved their beards. And also, horrifyingly, they loved their goatees that would later mark performers like Fred Durst of Limp Biscuit in the late 1990s. Talk about a superior race. The jury is still out on the objective attractiveness of a bearded male to a wanton female, as studies have shown wildly different results, but other results are consistent. Studies across the board, at least in America, have shown that women view men with beards as appearing more masculine, for better or for worse. As civilization and culture itself developed, trends of facial hair became marks of this masculinity, ebbing and flowing based on who was in power and what trendy thing they were doing with their faces. We can go all the way back to 330 BC when Alexander the Great commanded his army to shave their war-worn jaws in preparation for a decisive battle. Given that clean faces were considered a signal of effeminate degeneracy at the time, narcissist Alex the Great stood alone in his self-comparison to gods and wanted his men to follow suit. Fast forwarding through centuries of these changing ideals, we find ourselves in the early 19th century England, where beards had become a symbol of fanaticism and deceit, a mark of the poor and the insane. But that soon changed, and somewhere along the line, the trend of side whiskers became so popular that Victorian men unable to grow them often wore wigs with false mechanical whiskers they attached with springs and wires in order to keep up with the craze. Along with signifying male supremacy, since men could grow them and women couldn't, Beards were seen as the symbol of conquerors, those that heroically faced the new world and battled with nature and the beardless indigenous to secure that proverbial city on the hill. Famous loafing poet and back-to-the-lander Walt Whitman sang the body electric and was known for having a big burly white beard of his own and wrote, somewhat ironically considering how deeply gay he was, quote, Washes and razors are for foo-foos. Faced with a growing women's rights movement exemplified by the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention, men grew beards to, quote, codify a distinctly male appearance when other traditional markers of masculinity were no longer stable or certain. A manifesto for facial hair written in 1853 argued that nature allotted women, quote, attributes of grace heightened by physical weakness, and for men, quote, attributes of dignity and strength. Since men's work, they said, is outdoors in the wind, weather, and nature, facial hair provided suitable protection. Women were better to just stay inside than to be kissed by the brutality of the natural world or of a sudden destabilizing breeze. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. 
Factor will provide you with delicious, never frozen, ready to eat gourmet meals that are chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. In the colonial era, Barbering was a skill performed either by white indentured servants or, more often, enslaved people of color for wealthy men, both for physical grooming and wig upkeep. Whether still enslaved or newly free, the relationship between black barbers and their affluent clients was a uniquely intimate one. Needing to be well-versed in the art of conversation, Barbers became increasingly known and even relatively respected for cultivating an all-around elegant experience for their patrons. The shops were beautifully decorated and the barbers were finely clothed, and it wasn't uncommon for barbershops to serve good whiskey. Some freed black barbers, through investing their earnings, became the richest black men in their respective cities and communities. This relative prosperity even expanded to free black men in the American South. Alonzo Herndon, a man born into slavery, opened a barber shop in Jonesboro, Georgia in 1878. Eventually, he owned three barber shops by the end of the century, and in 1905, he founded a prominent life insurance company, and he was well on his way to becoming Atlanta's first black millionaire. But as emancipation allowed these shops to open their doors to free black men, the post-Civil War anxieties around racial mixing and changing power dynamics led white men to instead patronize the businesses of European immigrants. But black barbershops, on the other hand, would become iconic spaces for black people in the 20th century and beyond, a safe place that fostered a sense of community during the Jim Crow years and a space to discuss politics and organize during the civil rights movement. Barbers in general were further disenfranchised when the clean-shaven look slowly fell out of style in the mid-1800s as the President of the United States, for the first time, revived the beard to set himself apart. In 1860, Abraham Lincoln was a clean-shaven presidential hopeful who relied on things like facial hair to bolster optics and credibility. The style of politicians was a hotly debated topic, and Abe looked to a particular constituent to direct his facial sale. An 11-year-old girl named Grace Bedell wrote what was apparently a very persuasive letter that would change his campaign and perhaps America at large. Little Grace Bedell told Abraham Lincoln that, quote, all the ladies like whiskers and they would tease their husbands to vote for you. He took her advice and even arranged a meeting to thank her in person for the recommendation, which turned out to be a good one. 
Though rival candidates mocked Abe for his vanity, he became the first American president to have a beard upon his inauguration in 1861, so ha ha. At the same time, science, technology, cities, and the industrial revolutions cut off from nature was causing a crisis in what it meant to be a real man. Naturally, the rugged, burly beard became a new symbol of white American masculinity and conquering during the ongoing Western expansion when everyone wanted to be an explorer in their own pastoral fantasy. Characters like Teddy Roosevelt went camping in national parks with Walt Whitman, where they grab-assed around, roped cattle, and hunted in a controlled environment to stave off the nervous disorders that plagued and feminized the men of great import. As the 1920s rolled around and eugenics rose in popularity, scientists claimed that beards were a symbol of racial superiority, asserting that white men grew the biggest beards of all, and pointing to the beardless faces of the indigenous and the shorter beards of black people as proof. They failed to note that for decades and decades, black men had been forced to shave each other's beards in order to make them more attractive to those looking to buy a person. At the same time as Charles Darwin's eugenics, scientists were expanding the public's knowledge of germ theory, and suddenly, quote, lack of beard was a medical condition in the U.S. and throughout Europe. A medical historian named Alan Withy notes that, quote, the Victorian obsession with air quality saw the beard promoted as a sort of filter. A thick beard, it was reasoned, would capture the impurities before they could get inside the body. The Charles Manson-esque ragged beards of the late 1960s were less about masculine supremacy per se and more about rejecting their suburban, post-war, clean-shaven dads while still seeking that back-to-the-land pastoral fantasy that they combined with a transient, ungroomed lifestyle. And then the beard seemed to disappear until the mid-2000s when its popularity began to reach an all-time high. Interestingly, the phenomenon, outside of the hipster context, has been attributed to the encouragement of the United States military for their elite special forces operatives like Green Berets, SEALs, and Rangers to grow beards. This was due largely to the hope that since beards were a sign of manhood in Afghanistan and Iraq, the soldiers would better fit in and gain the trust of local populations. These special forces, the only soldiers allowed to remain unshaven, were seen as peak American heroes, and the beard again started to represent a kind of masculinity as the nation saw photos of these men shouldering the most dangerous of missions. We've all seen the new speaker, Paul Ryan, looking very young, in his early 40s. Well, yesterday on his Instagram and on his Twitter feed, he posted a new look. He's waiting on confirmation from the House historian, but apparently he thinks he's the first speaker to sport a beard in about 100 years. And the House historian did get back to him and said, yeah, you know what? The last speaker to do it was a well-known Frederick hmm. Huntington Gillett, who is a speaker from 1919 to 1925, who sported a beard. 
And now conservative politicians like Paul Ryan and Ted Cruz have been sporting never-before-seen facial hair that jarred us all as they walked it out for the first time, ready to assert an homage to battle as well as an homage to masculinity that seems more and more threatened with every social movement. The phenomenon of the hipster beard began emerging around 2008, when the last 20 years before, the most you were going to see was a soul patch. Interestingly, at least to me, this was also the time where gay marriage was the hottest topic and it was becoming more and more plausible with the election of Barack Obama right after George Bush built an entire campaign to oppose it. And perhaps it isn't a coincidence that in this modern era, one in which gender roles in mainstream liberal culture are slowly eroding and conservative gender roles are stubbornly holding on and even making a serious comeback, that men on both sides of the political spectrum are unconsciously cultivating a distinctly masculine look, albeit in different ways. As we talked about on our last episode, one big culture that hipsters have always taken from are the gays. And maybe, just maybe, these beards are an unconscious signal that says, I'm not gay, I am a man. And maybe, for some straight men, these beards are meant to be ironic, but doesn't irony always hold a grain of truth? Let's go back to our episode on suburbia, where we learn that even the most buttoned up of us middle classers have some kind of subconscious dream of conquering the unpredictable nature, what we fear and desire perhaps more than anything else. Middle and upper class hipsters have seized on the perfectly sculpted beard, carefully trimmed, still rejecting the clean shaven faces of their uncool dads. These beards remind me of the archetype of the perfect suburban lawn that we talked about in that episode. Lawns are an homage to our obsession with masculinity, the lawn being, of course, the almost singular domestic domain of fathers and their growing boys. But these patches of green also represent the freedom of the unlimited American nature, pared down and made safe enough to enjoy without fear. Throughout history, we can point to the long-term obsession with manliness, as well as colonialism and westward expansion that the beard has always represented. But in terms of the hipster, I think it's important to ask a vital question about this long-term pastoral fantasy of the affluent, rebellious American young man. Is the well-trimmed, modern hipster beard nothing more than the suburban lawn of the face. This was American Hysteria's Aftershock. Next time on the show, we are talking about rednecks. Please consider donating to our American Hysteria Patreon. You'll get an extra episode every month, as well as video diaries from me. Just like everyone, we've been having trouble. We've been losing some of our advertisers and other financial support as well. So in addition to all the myriad ways that you can help people during this time, consider donating to our Patreon to become one of our sweet patrons, our sweet Satans. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Produced and edited by Clear Como Studios, with script writing and editing by Riley Smith and Miranda Zickler. I like to say something funny at the end of every episode, but I'm kind of at a loss this week. 
Uh, we're heavily quarantined here in Seattle and we're expecting some shelter in place laws to be announced at any minute. I've been asked quite a few times whether I think that this is a panic or a hysteria and I'm just honestly not qualified to say anything about that. All I can say is that I hope that you all try your best to remain caring, to keep reaching out to people who need help, to talk to your grandma on the phone, to send money to people that you love if you can. And despite having to stay six feet away from every person you meet, remember that we're all somehow in this together. Terrifyingly uncertain moments like this can often bring out the worst in us. And I guess right now, the best thing we can do is not let it. Thank you as always for listening. Come join us on social media. We have fun over there as much as we can, and we love to have you come and interact with us there. Until next time, which I don't know what next time's gonna look like, the American Hysteria team sends all of our love and all of our hope to you and yours. Be safe. Hey, podcast listener, do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.